Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm speaking with Susan Choi, whose fifth novel, Trust Exercise, is out now from Henry Holt. Susan is also the author of the novels My Education, A Person of Interest, American Woman, and The Ford and Student. Her work has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, and winner of the Penn W.G. Sebald Award and the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. With David Remnick, she co-edited Wonderful Town, New York Stories from the New Yorker. She has received NEA and Guggenheim Foundation fellowships. Rarely have I wanted to press a book into people's hands the way I did when reading Trust Exercise. It is my favorite kind of novel, formally inventive but not at the expense of emotional connection with the story, full of sharp insights and sharper sentences. It's a difficult book to discuss without ruining the narrative possibilities that its superb, unconventional architecture sets up. So I'll just say this. The novel focuses on a group of 1980s teenagers at a performing arts high school, and it appears to be telling one story, until a huge time and perspective shift indicates the story might have been something different all along. Choi's prose is dazzling. As the book progressed, I started to feel like every word had been selected with fine tweezers. I'm in awe of its mastery and confident voice the sense that, while also doing the nitty-gritty work of everyday writing, Susan was having fun. It turns out that this is in part because the novel began as something Susan toyed with to avoid working on her, quote, real book project. We talk about this difficult paradox, that when you do what you love, it can start to just feel like work, and the importance of having those kinds of escape hatches. We also talk about the slipperiness of memory, the inherently manipulative quality of storytelling, and the advice Susan would have given her younger self as a debut author. Don't be afraid to write lots of garbage, but also, like, don't throw any of it away. (laughs) Have a very large storage system for all that garbage. Uh, Well, you know, I wanted to start uh, because as it happens... um, Last week, I spoke with Jane Allison, who's just written this uh, really interesting book about patterns and narrative called Meander Spiral Explode. And we talked a lot about um, kind of interrogating these rules of writing that we sort of have internalized without necessarily always being aware of it, of how we feel like what a story should be or what a novel should be. And and so I kind of wanted to start if you would just talk a little bit about, you know, how you approach that I know this obviously has a very a very interesting narrative structure. I don't want to spoil too much for folks who haven't read it, but um, can you talk about kind of how how you view that idea of like what a you know what a novel should look like? Yeah, I'm not even sure I any longer have an idea of what a novel should look like, which is and it's so interesting what you just said about this book, which I would love to read. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, you know, I think that. I can't really put a finger on it, but at some point between my last published novel and this one, while I was, you know, working on various things and kind of struggling to um, bring one of them to the finish line, I think I became incrementally aware of exactly what you're talking about, these internalized narrative patterns that... um, were so internalized that I didn't even recognize them as rules or conventions that I was following, but just as the way it was, the way it is, you know. And um, the process of kind of defamiliarizing all of that, recognizing that there were these conventions that I had 
been employing so kind of unquestioningly that I never viewed them as conventions. Um, you know, it. I just, I can't cite any one thing, just so many things. I mean, I think in part I was reading the work of so many amazing writers who are doing things that are surprising or um, inventive, playful, strange, you know, just, just reading books where I would go, oh, wow, oh, gosh, I didn't, you know, I didn't see that coming or, oh, gee, I didn't realize one could, you know, and so that was this kind of experience of like constant delight where I just kept coming across, you know, the unexpected and that happily, I think, settled in somewhere deep because I think as with a lot of other writers, it never works for me to try to do something a certain way. And, um, you know, the entire time from sort of the completion and publication of my last novel, My Education, until pretty recently, I was actually working on this book that I'm still, you know, flummoxed by that I've been talking about a lot in talking about trust exercise because I have to, you know, I feel compelled to keep saying like the trust exercise kind of happened in this almost accidental way as a as a respite from this other book that I was really struggling with. And this is the book about your grandfather? Yeah. Yeah. And and that book, you know, that book as it exists now is pretty conventional, narratively speaking. Um, and also just a project that I came to feel kind of like tied down by. Mm-hmm. And so every time I couldn't deal with it anymore and sort of went to like play around in this style that I didn't really think of as being a book. I think that, you know, I was I was just working outside the box in a way that I didn't even recognize as work, let alone as outside the box. You know what I mean? Because I'd be like, oh, God, I have to put in my writing hours. I don't want to work on this book that's not going well, but I need to sit here and feel like I've done something so I can eat lunch without guilt, which is often like the the single most potent motivation for me to do any writing, <laughs> the lunch without guilt motivation. So, you know, I would, um, I would put in the time as I thought of it, uh, not even really thinking, oh, now I'm working on this other thing. And so I think that that kind of lack of self-consciousness also opened the way for, you know, a certain lack of self-consciousness about the narrative because I wasn't, again, thinking of it as, oh, here's a narrative that I have to structure right again yeah i i i was i was thinking you 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 said what exactly what i was thinking um as you as you were talking as you were setting that up of like this is such a a kind of inherent danger in making what we love to do our work and because then it does actually feel like work and then there's that um you know, I, I, I feel like that, I feel like a lot of writers, that certainly resonates with me. And I'm sure that resonates with a lot of writers where like, I remember um, talking to Jamie Quattro and she said the same thing that Fire Sermon, the novel that her, her first novel that she just put out um, last year was like her cheating on another project that she like couldn't finish. Exactly. Yeah. Someone else that I think I was on a panel maybe with someone who used that exact idea to describe what I, what I was trying to articulate about trust exercise. I think they said to me something like, what you're talking about is called the affair novel because you're <laughs> cheating on your actual work with it. And I said, Oh my God, I didn't realize there was a word for it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it does just like, you know, especially 
and, and I, I don't want to imply at all that um, the the people of trust, the characters of trust exercise in the story are not important to you. But you know, when the primary project is something that's so that's carrying such importance and 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 such gravity, and I'm sure you're aware of approaching it very seriously and and maybe reverentially, and you know, it's your family, and then yeah, that you you need an escape hatch from that. Exactly. Yeah. And the escape hatch ended up, you know, sort of offering like repeated escapes. Like not only was the whole project initially an escape hatch, but then I kept sort of taking escapes from trust exercise itself because I felt less bound while I was working on it than I normally would because I often didn't think of myself. I thought of myself as like, work. I was like, oh, I'll work on this funny thing, but I didn't think of it as this thing that, that had to be completed. And so, you know, it turned out to have all of these fun trapdoors too, because when I felt like I had fulfilled the potential of some part of it and kind of, you know, was facing diminishing returns, if I kept going in that direction, I'd be like, oh, you know, here's a trapdoor. I could just do this. Yeah. And it was a while before all of those things added up to a thing. Right. And, you know, and then, and then inevitably that happened once it was a thing, you know, I got really cold feet about it and started having, you know, the much more familiar series of struggles in terms of like, well, what is it then? And and how do I finish it? Yeah. I was really interested to hear um, if you care to talk about it because it is so it's so precisely and intricately put together. And and I know, of course, all of the work that would go into that. But I, I was curious, you know, what, what was there from the beginning in terms of that structure? Or if you were just kind of writing into the darkness and then like, oh, it can, it, it, it went this way. Yeah, it was mostly like that for, for the, the vast majority of the book. It was sort of writing into the darkness and then suddenly going in this direction. And that was really true until the end when, like I said, that self-consciousness of being Mm -hmm. possibly near the end of something that I hadn't really thought of as being something um, took hold. And then, you know, I, uh, I choked and I, I wrote this ending that, um, that didn't work at all. Um, I can barely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I wrote this ending that I really love as a piece of writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I still have it, you know, and it's meaningful to me. But when I stepped back, the totality of the book wasn't quite what I thought it was intending to be. You know, it's a, it's a weird thing. It sounds mm-hmm. sort of mystical and I, I don't like that, but I really do have a lot of respect for like what the work wants to tell you about itself and um you know kind of kept that to myself but I came across this amazing essay that I now reference all the time by Jane Smiley called um I think it's called what the story teaches its writer or what the writing Mm. teaches its author or, or something like that but the you know the the operative word is teach um it's a fantastic essay about revision I give it to my students now when when I'm trying to um teach them what it is to revise, which is a very hard thing to teach because, unfortunately, revision is always specific to the project. And so you can never, I find, say, just follow these steps and, and you will, you will right. have succeeded. Um, so she 
you know, in this very practical-minded way, talks about the fact that when you go to revise a piece of work, you really have to look at the work. Like, it's the key to what it is, not your preconceptions about it, not, you know, whatever outline you might have written, not um, whatever abstract ideas you might have had, but but what's actually on the page um, is, is going to tell you what else needs to be there for the thing to be whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, and that was really true with this book is, you know, once I choked and realized that I was actually like in possession of something that needed to be completed, um, you know, I floundered around in the dark a lot and, and, and wrote a lot of endings that I really loved each in its own way, but uh, none of them was, was quite the ending that the material was asking for. And it, it took a while, you know, of, of false, not false starts, but false ends <laughs> before, you know, I, I figured out what, what the ending was that the, the material had been pointing to. Like the material contained that ending. I just had to kind of extract it. Right. Right. And, and I mean that, that feeling of, you know, like when you go through a draft and you're like, oh, I, I left all these signposts about this idea or like these metaphors also all suggest this one thing that like I maybe, you know, just on a first draft, like wasn't necessarily doing on purpose. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. That, that unconscious. Um, yeah. Writing. It's magic. I mean, it, it's really, um, it's, it's such a sort of like weird bonus <laughs> to the writing process. Yeah. The yeah. fact <laughs> that, you know, if you do enough of it, it almost feels like it starts giving you stuff, you know, where you're like, wow, thank you. I did not know yeah. that I had that in mind. I mean, I, again, like this makes me think of teaching because, you know, I often teach stories to my students that are so flawlessly assembled and that, that, that will say, you know, as we marvel over how each piece of the puzzle fits in and contributes, um, they'll say, did the author mean to do that? Did they mean to do this? Did they include this? Because, you know, all these questions about intentionality and, you know, obviously I'm like, well, we're not here to answer those questions because we don't know. But every once in a while, like, you actually can ask an author one of those questions if they happen to be like a living author that you encounter. And, you know, I, I did once ask Michael Cunningham about one of his stories that I teach that is so flawless in terms of just like every object you encounter in the story accumulates all this resonance by the end of the story. It feels as if the whole story was furnished 100% with, with the intention of, of contributing to these resonances and themes. And when I asked Michael about one thing in particular, he just was sort of surprised. He was like, Oh, Oh wow. That's great. <laughs> it was like as much of a surprise to him, you know, as as you were saying, like those those great metaphors would be a surprise to you when when you're like, oh wow, that really expands on this theme, and I did not realize that when I put it there. It's so funny. In the, the last few conversations that I've had for the show, like I feel like listening to the work is very much a theme that keeps coming up, and it, and it's something that like I don't know. I think I struggle with a lot because I I think part of me has actually just not accepted like the lack of control that you actually have writing anything. Yeah. You know? Um, but it seems like, it, it seems like a really good lesson. Uh, a, a friend, Leah Hampton, she's a, um, an MFA student right now at UT Austin. She was on a round table. I did about, um, an episode we did about whether you should get an MFA. And she talked about like how she like talks to her stories now. And it's like, you know, talking about suit sounding mystical, you know, she's just like, what do you need? Like what's going <laughs> hey, on? What's up with you? <laughs> 
Why are you being yeah. so evasive? Why are you avoiding me? No, that's, yeah. that's so, I love that. That's really, really, um, I mean, yeah. I don't actually talk out loud, but, you know, it might be helpful. I mean, it might at least be therapeutic because it, it is the same right, process. Right. I mean, it, is, it is like a questioning and a listening, you know, um, mm-hmm. just trying to trying to figure out what's going on there. And often the missing ingredient is time. And I, you know, I think that that's one of the the biggest um, challenges, like in an MFA or in any teaching of writing context. You know, I teach undergraduates for the most part. Um, but either way, you know, mm-hmm. you're you're trapped in like a an academic year, semester or quarter system, like a chunk of time that um, in the real world of writing, I'm always telling my students, just does not correspond to a chunk of time in which I at least would ever get anything done. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, guys, right. this is a 12-week right. semester. And in my writing life, in 12 weeks, I tend to get zero finished. Mm-hmm. So it's always sort of a tension between that imperative to deliver something. And I think the real need to like let the dust settle and take the time you need to really figure out like what that piece of writing is doing. I mean, I, you know, I often don't figure these things out for like months or years. Right. Yeah. I I can't remember now which interview I had read with you, but you mentioned that you thought it was really helpful to trust exercise, that it was a side project because you weren't focused on it. And then a lot of stuff happens in the background and the time that you're not spending with it. Um, and that, that seems very, yeah, I, I really do think that. I mean, and it's, it, it's funny because it kind of goes against one of my sort of most often cited imperatives for my students, which is like write regularly, write as often as possible, write daily, if, if at all possible. But I mean, that's still, I still think that that's really important, but it doesn't necessarily mean write daily on the same thing. Um, because sometimes things just need to sit, you know, and, um, I do think trust exercise was formed in large part by like the huge stretches of time that I wasn't thinking about it at all or engaging with it at all. You know, it looks like a geologic formation, (laughs) you know, like there were deposits, (laughs) there were erosions, um, you know, there were big wind and rain events, but like it, it was slow. And I love thinking about that. in terms of, you know, so many of the major themes of the book that are around memory and, you know, is there, is there an, is such thing as an accurate memory? Are you remembering it ac- accurately? Is there like an objective truth to anything that happens? Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. And I have to say, I mean, sometimes there's a real be- benefit in kind of like forgetting what you were doing, <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, um, yeah. I, mean, I often have complained, you know, to, to writer friends or really any, anyone who is being nice enough to listen to me complain about my work that, you know, my God, I haven't looked at this for so long that I like can't remember anything about it. But, but actually like that's beneficial sometimes, you know, forgetting what you were doing and then having to kind of like, um, get back there and, and, which is actually what you should do with any revision is kind of forget and then see it again, you know, revision it, literally. What is your writing process like in terms of, um, you know, I, I just spoke to uh, 
Kristen Arnett, whose debut novel is um, maybe now already out from Tin House or coming out soon from Tin House. And, and she was saying that to get through her first draft, she would only let herself look backward as far as a paragraph so that she could like orient where she needed to go. Um, but she didn't let herself touch anything. She wrote a thousand words a day, didn't edit any sentence, closed it, kept repeating it until she had like a manuscript worth of pages and then and then Oh yeah, inside. totally. That sounds just exactly like wow. How did she figure that out for her first book? I didn't figure that out for like I know uh, <laughs> three books. I mean, that is very much my kind of baseline MO now. Although again, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't hold for everything because you know, like with trust exercise, I put it down for months, years on end because I just didn't think of it as the thing that I was trying to finish. But anything that I'm kind of consciously trying to get to the finish line, yeah, move it forward. If you change your mind about some fundamental aspect of the premise, you've changed your mind. Just keep going, fix it later. You know, I make a joke to my students. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm always really facetious just so they'll remember, but I'm like, if you decide midstream that all of the characters live on the moon, they're on the moon from now on. Just don't go back and like spend mm-hmm. a bunch of time like changing Earth to moon in chapters one through five. Just keep going, you know, and because you're you're gonna have so many things that you have to contend with once you have the full structure of a draft that you're just, in my opinion, mm-hmm. wasting time if you go back and tinker. Um, before you figured out what that full structure is. Like I wrote my first two books that way in circles, you know, just going Mm. in a circle and then going forward and then going in another circle and then backing up and going in a circle. And it was very, very confusing and frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. That that sounds right. (laughs) Very confusing and frustrating. Yeah. And I, and I think it's so, um, a lot of times if I'm, if I'm really misbehaving in this way, I, I make myself write longhand because I, for whatever reason, have less of an inclination to, to get really fussy with sentences. But I, I think, again, it's kind of that control thing. It's like, okay, well, I can make this pretty. It's like how like cleaning a room feels or something, which is very different from like the, the, the generative, the feeling of like the generative part yeah, of the process. Yeah. You know? It is. It's a form of like, for me, at least, it's a form of kind of self-righteous procrastination, you know, which is which is similar yeah. to, yeah. for me, again, research past the point at which the research is strictly necessary, but it feels like a pious for way sure. to avoid actually writing because <laughs> you're like, but yeah. this is important. Yeah, I have, a, I have an academic friend who calls it noble procrastination. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah, noble procrastination, pious procrastination comes to the same thing. <laughs> Um, did, did you have to do much research for this? Um, I mean, I know you went to a high school, um, uh, you also went to a performing arts or an arts high school, right? Yeah. You know, it's weird because the research that I did for this was not, because again, I didn't think I was doing this. It was not for this, but for some, for something else, again, you know, there's just so many different things that I've never finished and, um, and yet <laughs> they, they kind of leave their marks and, I actually did a bunch of research on Scientology, which, you know, and this was, again, when I sort of was under the impression that I wanted to write fiction about Scientology, which, um, for the record, Mm -hmm. in case the Church of Scientology is listening, I never did. Um, 
never wrote anything about it, but I read a lot about it. And because there are links between certain schools of of acting technique and certain Mm -hmm. uh, practices in Scientology, the Scientology research actually ended up exercising a certain amount of influence over this story, even though um, it had been intended for for a story that was actually explicitly about Scientology. So that was a kind of an unexpected That's fascinating. You know, benefit. Like the like the trust exercises, like that sort of like those sorts of activities. Yeah, because the you know there are um and again like uh, my research didn't take me far enough in to be able to give you the full picture, but there are connections between sure. um there are connections between certain acting techniques and certain Scientology practices that, that are actual, actual connections. Like um, L. Ron Hubbard actually was really interested in these same acting techniques that are also of interest to teachers of acting and students of acting, that, that there are commonalities there that are very spelled out if you, you know, read into the history of Scientology and into Hubbard's kind of evolving of the, um, not the theology, but the practice. And so, yeah, I, I, I was really interested in those connections, the same sort of sets of actions, you know, certain exercises were being used in these very different seeming ways. Well, you know, it's funny, I, I did make a note to myself as I was reading that I, I have always thought that, you know, writing fiction and acting have a lot of similarities. Um, and so that that was part of what I thought you know, that was, was something I was thinking about as I was reading. But but then now that I now that I'm saying that out loud, there's not a ton of acting actually going on in the book. I mean, there, you know, there's performances of self and all of that sort of, you know, that whole can of worms about like, these teenagers trying to figure out who they are. And, and I love the way that they sort of like, there's such a like, swagger to their their very limited amount of freedom. Right. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I guess, I guess there is a lot of acting going on, but uh, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Acting on stage and off. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And a lot of, a lot of, I guess, you know, characterization slash persona construction happening. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and, and that, in general, I guess the the question that that makes me think of um, zooms out a little bit is that um, not to just spit observations of the book at you and then be like, have you react to them? <laughs> but um, everything was like so finely honed that I was just like, I just marveled at like, especially for me, the um, there are these these really emotionally precise moments and 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 observations that the narrator makes um and then that is that does translate you know that extends to their their personas and these ways that they carry themselves that they're you know sarah with her thrift store clothes and and david with his convertible and the car phone and all that that sort of thing and i guess i'm just i guess i just would love for you to talk generally a little bit about um the process of getting into that world so so precisely you know do you was a lot of that kind of first draft stuff or or how how does that work for you? You know, it depends. I mean, some sometimes sometimes that I hate to say this because I it 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 so goes against like you know every 
tenet I've ever tried to teach my students, but sometimes the first draft is best. Like everyone, I mean, not, and, mm. and I don't, by, by which I don't mean the first draft of like a whole, you know, thing, but sometimes like the first version of a moment or a scene or, a, or even a line of dialogue is the best one. And, and, and sometimes the 20th or the 50th is the best. It's, it's really weird and, mm-hmm. and hard to, um, hard to account for. And, you know, there are things that there are things in the book that I, I feel like I'd never got right. And there are things in the book that, uh, I tried multiple versions of them and finally felt like I got them right. And there are things in the book that are sort of very much as they were when I first put them down on paper, you know, or, or on the screen mm-hmm. as it actually is, um, since I compose on a computer. So it's it's a strange thing because I don't um, I don't think it's so much like a question of getting into the right mindset. It's just a weird, mm-hmm. just weird luck, really. You know, sometimes the first the first pile of words that you use to to try to convey something is the right pile, <laughs> and you know, and then most of the time it's mm-hmm. not. And it's like what you were saying about those endings, you know, you can, you can really love that chunk of writing on its own terms and then, and then have a lot of, um, have to, have to really kind of have a come to Jesus about it and be like, well, that's not, that still doesn't make it right, right here. And being able to recognize those impulses and what that, what those each, would each of those things feel like to you? Yeah, it is, you know, it's hard, but it gets, it gets easier, like the more I find, but the more I write and the longer, the longer that time goes on, the less, I mean, I, I forget that, you know, when I was like a younger writer or a student writer, if I managed to write anything, cause it's so hard, I was like, oh my God, something must come of this. It was not easy. Um, but it gets, it gets easier to kind of mm-hmm. just leave stuff in the dark, you know? Um, and there's also, mm-hmm. there's also the way in which the whole thing is this kind of messy ongoing process where like the stuff that doesn't necessarily work in the first context that you place it into um it doesn't mean it's not important or worthy or it doesn't mean that it's not going to work somewhere stuff gets folded in later on unexpectedly i mean like i'm like again i feel like it's all about like don't be afraid to write lots of garbage, but also like don't throw any of it away. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> have a very large yeah. storage system for all that garbage. Cause you know, it's only garbage in context. It may, it may turn out to be a treasure in some other context you haven't discovered yet. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. The storytelling is so authoritative and there is, there is misdirection and there's, there's a lot of kind of very sophisticated narrative stuff going on. And so the, the very real omniscience that the writer 
has to be able to execute that? Like, how does that square off with you with that, that process of just writing into the dark and, okay, I don't know what this thing is, but, but I I'm steering this ship somehow. And then into like, okay, this is the ship. This is where we're going. Here's your seat. I mean, yeah, I just, again, like I didn't, I feel like I don't have a very good answer for this because I just didn't at all have a plan for this. Um, when I do have a plan for projects, it always ends up sort of getting trashed anyway. But I think, yeah. you know, I think at least with this project, there there were series of sort of, you know, I guess kind of turning point moments where I did sort of think, ah, actually this is kind of the truth of this situation or, you know, um, I mean, mm. you know, distinct mm. moments like, you know, for example, like there, the story had been in one narrative mode for a while. Right. And I'd been kind of adding to it and having, having an enjoyable time with it and, and sort of it had, it had meandered. <laughs> and at some point in the meandering, I, you know, I'd left it alone for a while because it wasn't, wasn't clear to me where it should meander next. And I wasn't really that interested to be honest. Cause like, once again, I was trying to work on this other thing and, you know, when it, when it sort of came into my mind again, it was as if I was viewing everything that had happened so far from like a totally different angle. Like just as if I somehow sort of neatly like stepped out of the frame and turned around and looked back and gone, huh. Who says? You know, I just sort of had this thought of like, who says? Mm. Who says that that's how it was? And and it was it was a kind of a fun and very abrupt um, moment of just grasping that different perspective on events, and and not just right. not just the possibility of a different perspective, but like the specific emotional charge of that different perspective you know this this would be a an entirely different viewpoint and a viewpoint that was aggrieved irate funny you know right away I was like oh this 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 perspective this viewpoint like this consciousness is angry and funny like funny as hell she's so great and I I just I instantly was like oh yeah um you know so it wasn't it really was a sudden, you know, a sudden change of direction, but I doubt it was truly sudden. You know, again, it's like back to that whole like mystical thing we're talking about where, you know, you're probably on some level that you're not aware of, like mulling things over and slowly things are kind of shifting and sliding into a different arrangement than the previous arrangement, but you're, yeah, you're not, you're not like aware of that happening until it's happened. I would love to ask you, I really was curious about Karen, um, as a narrator, because her, her, her point of view is so slippery, even in terms of, you know, there, there's Karen, there's Karen with quotes there. She says, I, sometimes she even says we, um, and I would just love for you to talk a little bit about what that, what that does for you, what, what, where that came from for you. I mean, I think the easiest, the easiest way to describe where it came from was just this, um, again, this moment that I, that I was speaking of before about the sort of who says moment where there was a lot of story and, you know, I sort of hadn't given it thought for a while. And then one day I just, um, imagined, you know, this, 
this speaker, this, you know, until that time, seemingly peripheral person saying, you know, who says, like, who says that I was even peripheral? In fact, like, right. the fact that I'm peripheral is a little suspicious, <laughs> you know, uh, right. maybe yeah. like, you know, the very, the very, uh, you know, uh, marginal the very the, the the very way in which I'm marginal is, is is maybe indicative of the fact that I'm central, not it's, actually supposed yeah. to be in the margins. And, and um, you know, I I was thinking a lot. I always think a lot about. I mean, we all think a lot about storytelling, right? And and we think about storytelling in terms yeah. of, um, you know, in, in terms of like the work, right? Like, oh, I mean, I'm trying to like write this story or write this book or whatever, and and. Uh, but storytelling is so um, so central to our culture and our daily lives. All of us, regardless of whether we're writers or readers, are telling stories and being told stories. And I, you know, and I don't just mean it in the Joan Didion sense of, you know, we tell ourselves mm-hmm. stories to 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 survive our own lives, but you know we tell ourselves these cultural and these social stories, some of which are incredibly damaging. Um, you know, we tell ourselves stories mm-hmm. about, you know, we tell ourselves stories about like social structures that don't have to be structured in the way that they are, but our stories suggest that they do have to be structured that way, that there's no other possible arrangement. And I mean, unsurprisingly, like a lot of these kind of <laughs> deep and unpleasant thoughts were going through my mind during during the run up to the election in, in twenty sixteen during the during the primary period when, you know, it was really so like unavoidably clear that the nation's politics are this sort of like warfare of storytelling. It's like whose story is, is gonna mm-hmm. is gonna drown out the others. And just that whole tension around who gets to tell the stories. Who gets to tell right. the stories, you know, at every level, including the the national stories that affect all of us and who gets to get told about, you know, whether you're the leader of the free world and telling stories versus an immigrant and a person of color who's being told about, who's having a story, you know, you're having a story told about you that's not even remotely true. And yet it's this powerful story that is going to form and deform your entire existence. So I, I, I think just that whole darker side of storytelling right. and and its role in our everyday lives was really really preoccupying to me and um was sort of I think one of the things that led me all the way back to, to you know my little story, my little fiction story that I was working on where I thought, well, you know, who's who's the storyteller here and who's being told about? And do they like the way they're being told about or not? Mm-hmm. Karen's voice made so much sense to me because she is so, um, she has such sort of x-ray vision about the ways Mm. in which things are playing out around her. And she's, she's so just unsparing in her, um, diagnoses of, of people, including herself. And sometimes she's the storyteller and she speaks of herself in the third person and says, okay, you know, you've, you've told a lot of stories about me now. Now, why don't you listen to mine? Which isn't necessarily her saying mine is more 
<laughs> mine is more believable, but just I'm as good as you are at telling my story, if not a hell of a lot better. Um, and then sometimes she drops that and, and, and just speaks as the storyteller, not the one being told about. Um, but she's so, she's moving across that line in a really deft kind of witty way, you know? Yes. And, and so she's shining a light on it all the time. Like that, um, that taking on and putting off of, of the, the I voice or the she voice is her way of just demonstrating her total mastery of all of those modes where mm. she's like, I know how they all work. I know what they all do. I can, mm. I can use any one of the tools in the toolbox. I love that. And, and everything that you just said also about kind of bringing in, bringing in real life and, and a life since the election, you know, and I think Karen really, another thing that she does really definitely is, you know, all, all of that, the political climate and then, and then her function seem to also be reminding everybody that storytelling is, is manipulation of information regardless, you know, like, and there, that can be done benignly for sure. It doesn't have to always be, you know, propagandizing something, but, but you are shining a spotlight somewhere. And as with her being on the periphery, casting shadows. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so well played. I really like that. Yeah. You're shining a light on some things and, and just by virtue of doing that, you're putting other things in the dark, you know? I think what, what, what occurred to me as you were talking, and I love thinking about Karen as this, as a, as a, I don't want to say foil, but as a, as a sort of response to this is um, there is a lot in the first narrative in the book that you do as the reader kind of fill in the gaps for yourself. And I, and I was thinking about that when you were talking about the election too, of the ways that, you know, Trump can say these things and because they fit neatly into these boxes of story that his audience already subscribes to, it's like, okay, yeah, we got it. I recognize that story. Um, and and right, so you, yeah. you think you know a lot about, um, like Kingsley, for instance, you know, the, the, the teacher who plays such mm-hmm. a crucial role in the book, um, you're like, right, right, right. Okay. I understand mm-hmm. who this person is. Um, and then, and then you just, you know, fill in the gaps and go about, go about your, your pleasurable reading experience. And then Karen comes in and is like, wait, just a second though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now it's really <laughs> with, without like, again, sort of bringing in like the weight of the world and all of that sort of stuff from outside of fiction, it really is so sort of, I don't know, like fascinating, but also like dismaying and, and, and kind of confounding to think about like exactly like all of those ways in which um, as narrators, as listeners, you know, we all participate in this, like you said, this manip- this master manipulation of information and, and is it for good or ill? <laughs> <laughs> It does make it sound like an action movie or something. Yeah, yeah, which it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely not that. Yeah. I would love to really quickly um, talk about something that you mentioned earlier and that I was thinking about even before our call, which is, you know, I, I talk to a lot of debut authors on the show or kind of like, you know, sophomore authors and and you have obviously this is your is your fifth yeah. novel is that right yeah um so so at, at this point in your career I I'm really curious about 
how you feel about kind of writing as a career. And, and I saw this, you know, I loved this thing that you said in, in your profile in New York Magazine that you, you had this naive belief that when you sold your first book, you know, then you'd be a real writer and, and, and that would solve everything. And, and, and I think that there is so much, I think there's so much to that. I think that's such a universal idea. And I would just love for you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you are now and what you wish you kind of could have told that version of yourself. Oh gosh. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a great question and such a hard question too, because, um, I mean, yeah, what I would have told myself then, I think I would have said, don't quit your day job. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I would have said, like, oh, my God, go get a better day job and don't quit it. Like, you know, it's a um, a half joke of mine that I should have become a licensed electrician or 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 mm. acquired mm-hmm. some other trade that never, you know, never is not needed because yeah i mean i i feel incredibly incredibly lucky to have a career i think it is so hard and getting harder every minute to have a career as a writer it's like remember that scene in star wars where like they're running to try to make it through that like little portal that's like closing like the iris of a camera mm-hmm. and like they all manage to leap through right yeah. like just before it snaps shut and like almost like catches their clothing. It's, I feel like, you know, trying to, trying yeah. to get to the point where you can really feel like, okay, I have a career as a writer. It's like that. It's like, we're all sort of running through this like pinhole that's like closing. Um, and like, will any of us make it through? It just, it's a, it's a very, very wonderful, gratifying thing to be able to write and for that to be sort of my primary identity and my primary occupation. And at the same time, it's so unstable financially. It's so, um, mm-hmm. it just is, it's a really hard career to sustain. And I think that, you know, for me, I mean, sustaining it has been about carving out a place as a teacher of writing, which um, I feel incredibly fortunate have been able to do, but I didn't know when I was a young writer and trying to get that first book published, I did not know that the key to any kind of stability in my life, like the key to, yeah, I think, you know, I'm going to be able to definitely like keep contributing to my kids' college funds was not writing, it's teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's a reframing of the career that I thought I was pursuing. You know, I dropped out of graduate school to devote myself to writing. Like I dropped out of a doctoral program that was preparing me to be a professor because I was like, no, mm-hmm. I choose writing. <laughs> so how hilarious that I should mm-hmm. come full circle and be, you know, in a really fortunate position now where um, I'm able to teach, but I should have gotten that doctorate. You know, I should not have dropped out. I should have gotten it. I'd possibly be in an even more secure position now. So I, I just, I, I feel like it's, it's really challenging. It's really challenging for everyone I know who is writing right now. Um, I think is feeling this squeeze where there are just 
for reasons that I, I can't even begin to enumerate, increasingly, well, not increasingly, actually decreasingly limited resources to sustain us as writers. Yeah. And, you know, and so that's reality. And I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate and am incredibly thrilled to be bringing out like my fifth book and to have a classroom to go to, but um, it feels really fragile. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like, oh, phew, it's all settled. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's possible to ever feel that way. Maybe it never was, you know. Was there ever a time when being a writer was like a kind of a stable thing to do? I Probably not. So um, yeah, I wish that I had been more aware of that when I was a younger writer. I think, I think a lot of us take a leap of faith where we think, oh, it'll work out. And in a way, you have to, to devote yourself to something like this. You have to sort of think like, oh, it'll, it'll work. Yeah, I'll just do this. Um, but, you know, it is a big leap. And um, you don't always land in, a, in the most solid place. Well, that feeds nicely into the last question, which is uh, a, a question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations. Um, so switching, switching beats from the uh, actually feeding yourself side of things. Um, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? What does creative satisfaction look like? Um, wow. Mm -hmm. it, it looks a lot like this. I'm so happy that this book is in the world that people are reading it and getting something out of it, coming back to me and, and responding to it in ways that expand my understanding of it um that's the best you know that that's like what it's all about I'm so excited whenever a book that I write stops being mine and starts kind of returning to me in the form of people saying like I thought this or I wondered that or you know th these were the conclusions I came to this is this is this is what I made out of it it's like when other people take something that I've made and start making something out of it themselves like that's you know that's enough that's kind of the the end all for me. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.